All right. <clears throat> well, today we're going to talk about David and Goliath. And I'm, if I asked how many know the story of David and Goliath, I think all of our hands would go up. Um, I think this is a pretty iconic story in the Bible. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty powerful story. We've all heard the passage before. I mean, I've preached it before. It's a great story that teaches us that we can, with great courage and bravery, we can stand up as the underdog and we can find the victory and so we're going to look at that today the lesson from the story is simple is it not be brave like David well we're going to look at that today we're in this present series um, we're looking at the sufficiency of Christ how Christ is enough in any and every situation even when we're facing our giants like Goliath Christ is more than enough and uh, today the, the title of this message is The End of Me, and that's going to be a very significant, really, to looking at the story of David and Goliath today and understanding this story and getting the most out of it that we can. We're going to look at David and Goliath in kind of a fresh way today, kind of a little bit of a different approach to the story, and it really f uh, feeds into this idea of the end of me. If I want to fully appreciate, understand, and apply this story, I've got to understand this concept of coming to the end of of me and what does that really look like if i want to get the most out of the story if i want to know the success that david knew i have to understand this idea of coming to the end of me the end of myself um, here's our big idea today this kind of we'll just frame it real simple the end of me is where christ begins boy that's a that's a tough that's a tough big idea to remember right? this is a very simple very simple statement very powerful the end of me is where christ begins and so we're going to look at that idea today and really from t a couple of different angles as we get s started here because here's the reality i need to approach the entire bible the entire bible i need to approach it from the end of me what do i mean by that when i say approach it from the end of me well take the story of david and goliath david and goliath is really it's a story that's worked its way into the mainstream of our culture and our society case in point anybody here watch survivor on tv Besides me and Melissa, we've been watching it now for 30-some years. They're in their 37th season. Survivor, you know, you put 18 people on an island or some remote place, and they, you know, they compete with each other, and they vote each other off until there's one person left that's the survivor. And it goes on for 40 days. And they, they, they at times, frame different kind of scenarios Well, the scenario this time is David versus Goliath. And so they have all these Davids who... Um, have overcome all these challenges in their life. They've, they've just had a lot of weaknesses and, and, and struggles and things they've had to overcome. And then you've got Goliath over here who's got a very successful life and they worked hard, but they've got a very successful life. It's been really easy. And kind of the David and Goliath scenario. And so we, we, we look at that and we see how society has adopted this into the mainstream of culture. Here's the problem is that I think the way we look at the story of David and Goliath is probably the same way that society looks at the story of David and Goliath, and that's where we really miss the boat. Um, I don't think we've conveyed clearly to society what the story of David and Goliath is really about. See, the Bible is not our story. It is Christ's story. I always say that. I always emphasize. It's the autobiography of Christ. The story is all about Jesus Christ. And so much of preaching today, and I... And I might have done this earlier in my preaching. I don't know when I really got a hold of this, and maybe it's 10 years ago or longer than that. But 
yeah, I just got to, to, to understanding this. And so much of preaching today puts man at the center of every story. Puts man at the center of the Bible and the center of the narrative. And that's just not the way the Bible's written. The Bible is all about Christ. And so preaching always needs to be Christ-centric and not man-centric. Christ, not culture, needs to define our Bible stories really seriously. So I need to come to the end of me when I'm reading the Bible and know that this is all about Christ. It's not about me. That's the first thing. And then when it comes to applying the story, I need to come to the end of me. When I'm walking through the story of David and Goliath, specifically this story, I need to come to the end of me and realize um, that this story, again, is about Christ. Here's what I mean. Consider the traditional moralistic application. That's how we kind of, when you look at the Bible through the eyes of man, we kind of moralize it into a bunch of right and wrong choices that can lead to a successful life. And so the moralistic approach is pretty much be brave like David, right? That's, a, that's the message of this story. Be brave like David. And I'm not saying that's entirely false, but there's a better way to frame the story. And if you look at it through a gospel, uh, kind of a biblical and gospel narrative, rather than the traditional moralistic application, then you will see it a, a lot better. So that's what we're going to do today. Real simple. We're going to look at this story from a biblical and gospel application. We're going to break down this story and say, uh, what does this story look like when I put Christ at the center of the story and not myself? When this story is not just about uh, David defeating Goliath and I'm David and I can have courage and bravery and I can be successful as the underdog. What happens when I swip, swap it around and Christ becomes the heart of this story? So, revisiting and redefining the story of David and Goliath, the gospel observations in the story of David and Goliath. And I just went through it this week and looked at it and said, okay, what does this have to tell us or show us about the gospel? Because remember, realize, everything in the Bible is always pointing us to Christ and pointing us to the cross. Everything is, even this story. So we start, here is our first thing that I think we can pull out, is that Israel is in an impossible situation. They're in in an impossible situation. There is no hope for them, which is, of course, where the gospel really begins. Look what it says. 1 Samuel 17, and we're just gonna kind of pick some verses throughout the story today. We're not gonna be able to read the whole thing. It's a long chapter. But here's what it says in verse one. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And so you have Israel over here and you have the Philistines over here and you have this big valley in between and anybody that goes on the offensive is immediately at a disadvantage. You're down in this valley and you're in a defensive position so they're at a standoff. In fact, it tells us it's this way for 40 days. And so that's when Goliath comes out and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits in a span and uh, Goliath comes out. He has a solution to this problem and we'll look at that in a minute a solution to this standoff. But just a word about Goliath, because I can't go through the whole story here, but I can tell you that he stands anywhere from 10 to 14 feet tall. And I get this out of the Bullinger Study Bible. I think it's closer to 13 feet. Um, but there's all kinds of ways, to fact, things to factor in to come to a, a determination. Reality is you will find commentators today saying, oh, you know what, I think David only was about, or Goliath only was about seven feet. 
Now they, they're kind of refiguring how tall he was. And that is a gross misinterpretation. Uh, he is one of the Nephilim. He's one of those giants, kind of symbolic of Greek mythology, when the fallen angels intermarried with the, with the daughters of earth, the hu- humans here on earth, produced an offspring of giants. Greek mythology is not myth. They, they actually roamed the earth. And the Bible says they will roam the earth again, that that will all happen again, that the fallen angels will intermarry with the daughters of men. In fact, some think it already is happening and we just don't know about it. His armor was somewhere between 150 to 200 pounds total, his coat and everything. So this is one imposing uh, individual presenting an impossible situation for the Israelite people. And so here comes Goliath, and Goliath has a solution. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So they're in this impossible situation. It is a standoff. They're both on opposite sides of the mountain. And it's a hopeless situation. And that is exactly where the gospel starts with our helplessness and our hopelessness. The gospel comes along and addresses the fact that we're in a situation and we can't help ourselves. And Israel could not do anything for themselves. So think about the hopelessness of our sin, the darkness of our death, the reality of our enemy. Until we can recognize and admit our sin, we will not see our need for a savior. Until we realize the darkness that consumes us and our impending judgment, we will not look for a savior. And until we come to the end of ourselves, we will not turn to a savior. We have to come to the end of ourselves. We have to be able to look at our life and say, I am in a hopeless and a helpless situation. I need a Savior. When I come to the end of myself, I find the beginning of Christ. So we start this story where the gospel starts with the hopelessness and helplessness and the impossibility of the situation. May I just add that long after we're saved, the gospel addresses the hopeless situations we're in. If we're in a physical situation like an illness or a disease, the gospel comes along and gives us the hope of heaven and eternal life and a a coming new body. If we're in a relational struggle, the gospel comes along and gives us the hope of forgiveness and reconciliation that we can solve the problems or or that that, the brokenness in that relationship in our personal fleshly failures and battle with sin the gospel comes along and gives us the hope of telling us and reminding us who we are in christ and what we have in christ and that it's not based on what i do it's based on what christ did the gospel continually speaks hope into the hopeless world that we live and the hopelessness of our lives the end of me is where christ begins and just note this as well that this goes on for 40 days the gospel starts with our helplessness and hopelessness and in this story it goes on for 40 days for 40 days david comes out stands there and taunts the israelite people every single day day after day after day have you ever had something like that in your life it's just day after day there's this voice in your head you are unworthy you are unfaithful you have no hope and that's what Goliath comes and does. That's the first lesson in this story. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. It was a hopeless situation. Here's a second gospel observation. 
A son submits to his father's authority. So here's the story. Uh, chapter 17, and Jesse said to David, his son, in verse 18, see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. And then down in verse 20, and David rose early in the morning and went as Jesse had commanded him. So God, so Jesse says to David, go to the battlefield and here's what I want you to do. And that's exactly what David does. He submits to his father's request. The key to understanding this story though is that David has, consider this, he has two missions and he has two fathers. That's the key to understanding the story because while Jesse, his earthly father, sends him on a mission to check on the welfare of his brothers, the heavenly father is sending him on a mission to go and to, and, and to silence Goliath and defeat the Philistines and end the war. And that's the reality that's going on. There are two fathers and there are two missions in this story. And that's the reality. The thing is, Jesus came on a mission and repeatedly throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, I came and I was under the authority of the Father. You know what makes the Gospel work so well is the fact that Christ came humbly and obediently as a servant and submitted himself to the will and authority of the Father. That's what makes the Gospel work so well. And it's no different for you and I. The gospel works wonders in our life when we simply have a servant's heart and we surrender and submit ourselves to the will and the authority of our heavenly father. That's just the simple reality. Again, note this goes on for 40 days. Okay, Goliath comes out for 40 days. And what's really interesting, when Jesus came to earth for his mission, right? What's the, what's the, how did Jesus kick off his earthly ministry? You remember? He spent 40 days where? Out in the wilderness being tempted by the original Goliath, Satan. For 40 days, he's tempted out there in the wilderness. And just as, just as Goliath badgered Israel for 40 days, Jesus went out for 40 days, was tempted in the wilderness. We see these tie-ins that just show us it's a snapshot, a, a glance back to the gospel. Can I just add a word of encouragement for all parents too? Just, just think about this as parents and you have kids and just, if you, if you were in Jesse's shoes and Jesse didn't know this at the time, he didn't know what David was walking into, but let's just say Jesse knew that David was gonna go down there and fight Goliath, would Jesse have let David go? And I, I'm just, you know, as parents, do we hold back our children from what God maybe calls them to do because we're a little scared? There, there's a, a, an article I saw this week. You all, all heard of helicopter parents, right? Helicopter parents hover over their kids and right. Well, there's a new term out. How many have heard of lawnmower parents? That's the new term, lawnmower parents. And what do you think a lawnmower parent does? Well, they go before their kids and mow down all their problems. And they take all the adversity out of their children's life because we don't want to see our kids suffer, right? Now, how well, what's the end result of doing that? Well, they've discovered the end result of doing that. It's called you go to college and you have to have safe spaces. Because no kids can face any adversity. And so don't be a lawnmower parent. And if you're a lawnmower parent, what you're going to do probably is take some of those uh, opportunities that God sits before your child and you'll just take them away because, well, you don't want your kid going out and facing a Goliath. And yet, yeah, you do. You want your child to realize all they can be in Christ and what he can do for them. So teach your kids that at the end of themselves is Christ. To come to the end of themselves, they'll find in strength that they can face anything this world throws at them and any Goliath that comes in their way, they can stand up to him. Teach them that. Number three, here's a third 
um, uh, a third lesson. Look at verse 23. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So David is... David's now here at the camp and he's talking to some people here and out comes Goliath and he, he defies Israel again. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid and the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. So Goliath is just, just striking fear into everyone's heart. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Here's what we have. We have a son who reflects the father's heart. You look at the story through the gospel narrative and you see the, this great gospel observation that here is a son who reflects his heavenly father's heart. I want you to think about something Realize this, here's King Saul, right? King Saul has heard Goliath come out 80 times, twice a day for 40 days, 80 times come out and defy the God of Israel. David heard Goliath come out and defy his God how many times? Once. And that's, that was enough for David. Just what a great contrast. What a great contrast, 80 times to one time. David had a special heart. He had the heart of his heavenly father. In fact, in, in the book of Acts, Paul is preaching and he talks about David. And he says this, and when he had removed him, Saul, he raised up David to be Israel's king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do my will. That's where the phrase comes, that David was a man after God's own heart. It comes from Paul telling the story. David stands out in this sense because while everyone else is paralyzed by their, their, their fear, by their common flesh patterns of doubt and despair and worry and fear and whatever, David has a strong and courageous and brave heart. Why? Because his heart was after the Father's heart. He had a heart for the things of God and you can't miss the comparison here. Jesus comes in to start his earthly ministry and we said the first thing he did was spent that time in the wilderness. The second thing he did was he went into the temple <laughs> and he threw out the money changers and, and he threw out all those that were buying and selling. He said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. And when he did that, the Bible tells us in John 2, 17, the disciples remembered, okay? Um, the disciples remembered something here uh, that Jesus had a zeal or a heart for the things of God. This is what the disciples remembered. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They remembered the prophetic word about their Messiah, that when their Messiah came, he would have a passion, a zeal for the things of God. And they're like, whoa, that is the Messiah. <laughs> Look at that. That's exactly how he's described to us back in the Old Testament. And this is the righteous anger that Christ had that guided him through his earthly ministry, his righteous indignation. This is what drove him all the way to the cross. It's fascinating in the story of David and Goliath. You see David three or four times. David runs here. He runs, he runs here and then he runs over to Saul and then he runs out to take on Goliath. He's got this kind of this urgency, this passion, this zeal within him. And that's exactly how Christ is described. Isaiah 50, another prophetic passage about Jesus says this, but the Lord God helps me 
Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. That's speaking of Christ. Setting his face like a flint on the cross. And he came in, in, into his earthly ministry and the cross was there and it drove him for three years. It was all about the cross. And going to the cross and doing the work of the cross and setting us free from sin and death and shame and Satan. So just as David was determined to shut up Goliath, Jesus was determined to go to the cross and shut up Satan and defeat Satan once and for all. And the application here is real simple for you and I is that we, when we come to Christ, we all get a new heart. We all get a brand new heart. There's a passage in the Old Testament that says that man's heart is deceitful. But we don't have a deceitful heart anymore. When you're saved, you get a new heart. You can have a heart that beats with a passion for the things of God. You can, you can be as passionate about the, the things of God as David was and as Jesus was because you have a new heart. It's just a matter of what controls your heart, the spirit or the flesh. When I come to the end of me, that's where Christ begins. When I come to the end of me and, and, and I just latch onto his heart and man, what can be done with and through my life. Here's another gospel observation, verse 28. Eliab, his elder brother, heard when he spoke to the men. So David shows up and here's his older brother. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David and he said, why have you come down and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart for you have come down to see the battle. And I read that and I immediately thought about Jesus came into the world. What does it tell us when Jesus came into the world? John 1, 11, Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. We have a son who came to his own and was rejected. David came to his own brothers. He just came because his dad asked him to. He came seeking their welfare. How are you doing in the battle? Here's some food. That's why David came down and his brother lashes out at him. And here's Jesus who comes into the earth, comes to his own, came to those Israelite people. He's an Israelite, comes to all the Israelites, comes to be their Messiah, their king, comes to ultimately redeem them and they reject him. They do not receive him. A son who came to his own and rejected King Herod was threatened by Jesus, by his power and authority. And when you think of, of David here and his brother being kind of upset with him, he was probably a little jealous because shortly before this, David, Samuel came to, to Jesse's house, to David's house, and he anointed David to be the next king, and he passed over Eliab and anointed David instead. And that's maybe where some of this jealousy is rooted in and some of this anger. So I have one last gospel observation, but before I do that, I'm just gonna read a chunk of the story here then. I just gotta read a bit of this, and it's not on the screen, and you'll just have to listen to this here, and uh, here's what happens next, about 11 verses, and the Philistine moved forward, so they're getting ready to do this battle, and the Philistine Goliath moved forward and came near to David with his shield bare in front of him, and when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was a, but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance, and the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. 
Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all... Uh, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone, stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines. Wow, what a great story. And in that story, what we have is all the key players of the gospel. We have all the key players of the gospel. And the key is, we have to identify who we are. And while most of the world and the culture would say, well, we're David, right? We're going out there to face our giants. We have to see it a little, little deeper than that, a little more clearly than that. So we start off, um, that was weird. So we... Now let me advance. Okay. All right. That'd be fine. Anyway. So Goliath, who is Goliath in the story? Goliath, we have to understand, Goliath is simply Satan, who is the defiant one. That's who Goliath represents. The one who comes out for 40 days and strikes fear into the heart of Israel is none other. He represents Satan. That's what he does. That's his mission. He comes out. And there are a few things in the text that kind of uh, illustrate this for us. For instance, oh, there it is. Goliath, the Satan, the defiant one. And we see that he is identified by the number 666. Simple little things in the story. He has six pieces of armor. Um, it mentions in there, uh, what does it say? There's two other things that reference the number six. He, had, uh, he was six cubits tall and his spear point weighed 600 shekels. You just kind of see 666 come out of that text there. And of course we know that 666 is representative of Satan. That's one thing. We also know that he's wearing armor and, and many think it's symbolic of a serpent. It was like a, like a scaly kind of armor like a, like a serpent would wear and we know that Satan of course is likened to the serpent back even in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And then Goliath, I think this is really cool. He's likened to a, a bear and a lion. We didn't, we read this earlier but so one time David's out in the field tending his sheep and a bear and a lion attack him and he single-handedly with his arms kills this bear and kills this lion. And so he tells that to Goliath. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. Bare-handed, no pun intended. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. So here's what's really interesting. Back in the book of Revelations, speaking of the beast, which is one of the... Um, 
speaking of the beast. <laughs> anyway, maybe I'll let that go for now. Uh, Revelations 13, 2, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bears, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. So just as Goliath, the defiant one, blasphemed God, so does Satan, and he's likened to a bear and a lion. I think that's really fascinating. Little things like that that just kind of show us who in the story he really is. Then we go on and we see that um, David equals Christ. He's the victorious one. Yeah, you're not David in this narrative, actually. David is Christ. He is the victorious one. And again, there are a few things that kind of show us this. For instance, think about this. David defeated Goliath how with a stone. One stone's all it took. And who is Christ? But he is the cornerstone the one the builders rejected uh, that is the one who defeated satan i think that's kind of a fascinating tie-in also we see that we have one man and one blow that defeated the enemy one man and one blow on the cross defeated the enemy there's i've shared this before there's this theory that jesus after he dies goes into hell for three days and battles satan for three days down in hell and that's just not biblical that's just not true i don't know why people come up with that it's real clear jesus said on the cross it is finished it was finished on the cross it was done on the cross and uh, it just took one man it took one blow defeated the enemy just as David defeated Goliath the same way. And then Goliath took a mortal wound to the head. He took a mortal wound to the head. And we know from Genesis 3.15, in fact, I might have put it on here. Genesis 3.15, I I didn't put it on here. Uh, But we know in Genesis 3.15, the prophecy was that one day, um, one day, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So on the cross, Satan bruised the heel of Jesus. But on the cross, Jesus bruised his head, crushed his head, literally crushed his head, destroyed him. Just as David comes and cuts off Goliath's head, it's symbolic back there in Genesis 3.15 that when um, Jesus died on the cross and defeated Satan, he cut off his head, he crushed him, he totally um, defeated him. And that's just an amazing thing. And uh, lastly, we see one man standing in for the many who then enjoy the victory. So here's one man who goes to the cross, wins the victory, and then all of Israel, what? They all celebrate, they all rejoice in the victory. Isn't that a great picture of the gospel, right? Christ went to the cross for the many. And we all enjoy the fruits of that victory so satan or so goliath is satan the defiant one david is christ the victorious one so then where are we in the story who are we well yeah we're israel we're the helpless and hopeless ones we're the ones that have no hope unless a savior shows up and redeems us that's what we we needed someone to come and rescue us and that's exactly what christ did we have no hope we're paralyzed by fear doubt despair and a host of other things. That's the simple reality of who we are. So we see the gospel clearly portrayed in this story. We see we, a helpless and hopeless people, need a savior. His name is Jesus. He came on our behalf and fought our battle, taking on our sin. And in one big blow on the cross, he defeated the one who held a death sentence over us. He defeated the one who enslaved us to the flesh and paralyzed us with fear. The end of me is where Christ begins. When I stop trusting in myself, that's when Christ 
can begin to take over and do amazing things. So let me give you just a couple of handful uh, of, of application points here that will make this so beautiful. Day after day, Satan attacks us with psychological warfare. That's exactly what he does. What Goliath did out there on the battlefield is what Satan does to you and I every day. He comes out and he lies to us and, uh, and he taunts us and he terrorizes us in a host of ways. Um, he comes out, tells us we are unworthy, we are unfaithful, and that we have no hope. That's really what he does. He comes out and he just tells us that he taunts and challenges, here it is, our worthiness, our faithfulness, and our hopefulness. He comes and tells you, you're not worthy, look at your life. And you're not faithful. And you have no hope. That's what he does every day to us. And that's just a bunch of lies. And we need to know that someone came and defeated him and we don't have to listen to those lies. Here's a second point of application. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Think about that. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. We are not fighting to win. We are fighting because we already won. We've won. The battle has been won. Christ won the battle for us. Whatever giant you may face in your life, however Satan manifests himself in your personal spiritual battles, whether it's physical or relational or mental or emotional or financial or whatever it might be, remember that Christ has already won the war. He's won the war. He has defeated Satan. He has taken him down. If you can identify your giants, some of us, are, our giants are just those common flesh patterns. Fear and worry and doubt and despair. Just know those things have been defeated at the cross. Don't let, don't let Satan stand there and taunt you and tell you you need to be afraid of those things. The power, hope, and peace of Christ conquers our fear, our worry, our doubt, and our despair. The war is over. I've shared this before, but you know, here's the way it works. Usually when you're in a war, right, it's got all these little battles in the war. And, and what do you, why do you fight all those little battles? You fight them to see who's going to win the war. And so eventually the war is over, right? And when the war is over, what happens to the battles? Well, you stop the battles because the war has been done. It's, but that's not the way it works with Satan. Satan lost the war, but he keeps engaging us in battles. He keeps trying to tear us down, to, to de- destroy us, to defeat us, to demoralize us, to cause us despair. He does that all the time. and We just have to know that, that Goliath has been defeated. We just need to know that. And if another Goliath rises up, you know, he's already been defeated. We need to know that. We need to move from a moralistic approach. Here's a third one. We need to move from a, uh, we need a gospel application, not a moralistic application. Where we shift the narrative, catch this, from be brave like David to be brave in Christ. That's the narrative. The narrative is not a moralistic one where it's just be brave like David, it's be brave in Christ. The, the, the narrative isn't, you know, if you just do the three points in this sermon today, you can be brave like David. If you just have your five stones and here's what each stone represents, boom, you can be brave like David. Here's the problem with the moralistic approach to the story. What happens when you have your five stones and you fire all five stones and Goliath is still standing? What, what happens when your giant doesn't go away? See, the moralistic approach doesn't work. The gospel approach tells you what? The gospel approach tells you, my giant's already dead. 
Yeah, Satan's still fighting me and he's still trying to tell me that I have all these problems and issues and still I'll I'll have issues in this world. I'll have issues in the flesh. I'll face persecution and adversity and trials. Yeah, I will. But the war is over. And the gospel approach is able to recognize that. It's not be brave like David. It's be brave in Christ. And whatever you're going through and if your giant doesn't fall, if, if that physical thing continually taunts you, if that relational struggle goes on, if that emotional burden continues, be brave. Be brave in Christ. That's the message we need to walk away from this story with. And then four, it's not what's, what I have on the outside that matters, but what I have on the inside. That's what matters. You know, it's fascinating when Samuel comes to anoint David as the king, and he comes and there's all the brothers, and of course there's Eliab who gets overlooked and he's jealous because of it. But here's what it says. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And that's, that's the reality. David had a heart after God, and when God looked at David, he looked at his heart. And it's not what you have on the outside. It's not the resources you have. It's not how strong you are, how important you are, how much money you have, how talented you are. None of that matters in the end. It's just who you are inside right here. Be brave in Christ. Be brave in Christ. Know that Christ is in here. The Holy Spirit's in here. That's the reality. The end of me, the end of me is where Christ begins. And then, catch this, find your holy courage and your confidence in who God says you are. And I find this is fascinating because, look at another verse with me. This is back in 1 Samuel 16 again. This is the chapter before David goes out to face Goliath. And uh, I do believe that in the uh, chronology this happens first. Psalms 89.20 tells us, David says, I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him. But back there in 1 Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, anointed David in front of Eliab. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And you know, this is really interesting. I've never thought about this before. But see, this is really unusual for the Old Testament because today the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us and never leaves us. But back in the Old Testament, that's not the way it worked. The Holy Spirit didn't come and fill somebody and just indwell them permanently. The Holy Spirit would come and go. But it sounds in the narrative here, like for David, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. It's almost like the the Spirit didn't leave him. Even when David committed his great sin in in the Psalms 51, he says, Lord, take not your spirit from me. It's almost like David had enjoyed what you and I enjoyed. He had the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit. And, um, And how did David, how did David take on Goliath? A chapter later, a few months later, a year later, how did he take on Goliath? Because he had the Spirit of God in him. That's why. See, it wasn't, it's not be brave like David. It's be brave in Christ. Be brave through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. 
We just need to keep that in mind. Find your holy confidence and courage in who God says you are and God tells you you are his. He put his Holy Spirit upon you. He sealed you. He gave you Christ. And then finally, number six, you won't face a bigger enemy than Satan, sin, death, and hell. So what does that say about all the giants we're gonna face in our life? What does that tell us about all the giants we might face in our life? Well, you know what? You'll never face a bigger giant than Satan and sin and death and hell. And that's exactly what Christ defeated at the cross. He took your biggest enemy out of the way. So you really have nothing left to fear. Yeah, we're gonna go through stuff in this world. We're gonna face challenging situations in this world. We're gonna face our giants in this world. And sometimes those giants, are gonna break it to you. We might sling our stone and the giant might not fall. So we need to be brave in Christ. And if we're brave in Christ, then you know we're really being brave like David. Think about that. If I'm brave in Christ, then I am being brave like David. A couple of questions here. What verse or thought this morning really spoke to you? Can you pick out one verse, one thought, one idea that really spoke to your heart today? And then, do you have any perceived giants you are presently facing? What did you learn today about approaching these seemingly impossible situations? What did you learn today about the giants that you're facing, about their reality, about the reality of Christ and and then finally, what does it mean to you to come to the end of yourself so that Christ can begin? Mal- uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, he has a book called David and Goliath. And listen to what he says. He documents the lives of many successful leaders and entrepreneurs who succeed not in spite of challenges and suffering in life, but because of them. He calls this phenomenon the advantage of disadvantage. Gladwell cites a study from from, uh, City University of London that notes that a third of highly successful entrepreneurs are dyslexic. Richard Branson, Charles Schwab, and Paul Orphalia. Uh, Researcher Sharon Thompson-Shill recalls speaking at a prominent university donors meeting filled with successful business people. And when she asked how many of them had been diagnosed with a learning disorder, half of the hands went up. Gladwell's insight on this is profound. There are two possible interpretations for this fact. One is that this remarkable group of people triumphed in spite of their disability. They are so smart and so creative that nothing, not even a lifetime of struggling with reading, could stop them. The second, more intriguing possibility is that they succeeded in part because of their disorder. That they learned something in their struggle that proved to be of enormous advantage. The reality is, and the reason we need to find Christ at the center of this story, is that he is the one who invades our hopelessness and takes our weaknesses, and yes, our disadvantages, and uses them for God's glory and our own benefit. How many times do our disadvantages not make us feel hopeless, and yet with Christ, it is just the opposite. At the end of me is when Christ begins. When things are most hopeless is when Christ shines the brightest. What a, what a fascinating story. They always say the show on TV survivors like a social experiment. And so it's, it's men versus women, two tribes, or one time it was the no collar and the blue collar and the white collar, you know, three different groups of people. And, 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 and you start out in individual teams and then you, you end up, 
merging into one big tribe and you vote people off and who's going to win? And so the question this, this time around is, well, who will win, a David or a Goliath? And, and it's just fascinating that we can win as David despite our weaknesses when we come to the end of ourself and find our strength in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for uh, the example, the story of David. For a young boy who had a heart after you, who pursued the things of God, who uh, could only stand here and you defied one time and he rose up. Uh, thank you for his life. Thank you for his testimony. Lord, help us understand, though, the real heart of the story is Christ. That Christ is the one who went to the cross. Christ is the one who defeated Goliath. Christ is the one who silences our enemy. Christ is the one who gives us uh, uh, bravery and, and courage when maybe it wouldn't make sense to be brave and courageous. But in Christ, we, we can find that. I pray today this message speaks to all of us in a unique way that you'll apply it to our lives as we go our separate ways. And now I pray, Lord, your blessing upon everyone here today, your grace and your peace to go with us as we leave here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.